Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, after a very long absence, I suppose it would be appropriate to welcome myself back to the podcast. It's been four months, maybe five, since my last episode, and I've been very, very busy. Uh, In fact, so much has happened that I have tons to talk about and uh, thought I had better get back in the saddle today and take a stab at an episode. Uh, For one thing you should know, I am uncertain as to the future of this podcast I don't intend to stop publishing, uh, but it is very expensive to keep this going every year, and we've had a couple of poor years back-to-back. It costs me probably about $600 a year to run this, and that is is, uh, not easy to come by lately. Perhaps our fortunes will change, Uh, but I have considered uh, moving the podcast over to YouTube which is uh, could be good and bad. Uh, for example, at YouTube, if I'm going to just post audio there, well, that would be pretty much free for me. Uh, but then there's the question of having to add something to look at, even if it's just a still shot. That wouldn't be too hard, although it's a little extra work. And um, But then the, the looming question is, oh, well, aren't you going to add anything else for us to look at? Uh, you know, a live shot of you speaking or um, graphics or, you know, the occasional quoted verse. You could show that on the screen. Well, yes, I could. In fact, I could make a full run video, which is probably five to ten times the amount of work as just sitting at the mic and talking. So for a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of extra time on his hands anyway, it is very daunting. I would quite love to keep this going and uh, could certainly love some uh, some some support from uh, you listeners. I don't get many. I think I have got myself quite a niche uh, program here because I'm not talking about the kind of stuff that you hear everywhere. And uh, it's very hard for word to get around. Uh, Word of mouth is only goes so far and I don't have big advertising money, but I'd love to keep this going. And so, uh, I wanted to say this right up front in case this is the last episode that I pay for here on um, through my podcast uh, service uh, company that I'm hiring out. So uh, if this should happen to be the last one, please know that you can always go find my regular blog site at jackpelham.com, J-A-C-K-P-E-L-H-A-M.com. And in fact, uh, today I'm going to read to you and discuss an article I wrote there uh, probably a month ago or so. 
And uh, so you'll always be able to find me there. And if I do start some YouTube channel uh, for this purpose, I will certainly uh, advertise that there. So in the meantime, uh, perhaps this won't be my last uh, podcast episode here. And I hope that's the case. But I didn't want you to get lost and think that I had disappeared from the planet in case you don't find me uh, posting further episodes. So what has Jack been doing? Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, you probably know by now, if you've been listening for long, that I have been running a homeschool program as a volunteer. Uh, this is my fourth year, and uh, I've been teaching things like uh, band and chorus and uh, skits and public speaking and etiquette, uh, constitution, reality-based thinking, uh, things like this, uh, to homeschoolers, uh, especially things that are home hard to do well at home. And uh, that has been a very enriching and challenging uh, endeavor for four years now. We've rented a, a warehouse space. We've converted it into what we call the great room. And uh, it's a pretty cool-looking room. Basically, it's a mini theater and uh, classroom. And we have room to seat, you know, 100, 125, something like that, uh, to come see a show. We just closed out our semester last night with a, a Skitworks comedy show, which uh, most of which we wrote ourselves. And we had a cast, I believe, of 11 and a crew of two. And uh, it was a very good show. Uh, but it wasn't just the close of the semester. It was the close of the program, the homeschool program we're uh, discontinuing, and so with the great room itself. Well, this is a huge loss, and it's uh, for economic reasons mostly that we're stopping. Um, we've uh, come into hard times. We weren't sure we could get through the summer, and we don't know what the enrollment in the fall would be like, uh, especially given the failing economy. We'd already had some people not returned this spring, and uh, be, uh, you know, citing economic reasons for it. And so when gas money is hard to come by, it's hard to drive into town and bring your kids by the great room for a class for an hour or two. So uh, times are hard. It seemed like the right thing to do to not try to go to heroic measures to make it work, but to take a hiatus. And I do hope we'll come back to it, but there's just no telling what will happen. In the meantime, though, I learned a ton. Uh, I have worked with so many people on so many things and have learned an awful lot about what we're like as people. And if you followed me for long, you know that that's one of my bigger uh, areas of interest is uh, what kind of people are we? And of course, I also mean what kind of person am I? Am I being what God had in mind when he made me? Or would I be some manner of disappointment to God? Uh, or he, even uh, something that would anger God and irritate him? You know, on uh, Esau, I have thrown my sandal, or whatever he said. I would certainly hope to avoid that kind of uh, judgment by God. Anyway, I've learned uh, so much about people, and I want to talk about that some today in this uh, article called uh, Dysfunctional Christianity. I'm going to read it to you, and then where I can't stand it, I will butt into my own uh, writing and make a few other comments here and there. But this idea, uh, a lot of things have come together in my head more and more as I keep studying and learning and discussing and uh, working with people. And I want to share a little bit, um, by way of introduction to this episode, about what I notice about people. 
And this is, you know, public speaking class. This is singing, uh, chorus, uh, just all, all kinds of things. I notice that uh, people are not really good at being self-aware. They may not know really what's coming out of their mouth or what it sounds like, how fast it was, how clearly uh, spoken it was, what the tone of it is, whether it sounds like they're just reading or they're really acting a line like a a real-life person would say it in the real-life situation. We're just not very good at that. And while this um, podcast is not about public speaking or singing or things like that, uh, this certainly serves as quite a metaphor for what we're like as people. Because most of us don't realize that when we debate something on Facebook, we don't realize what is the quality of what we're putting out as we type our arguments. Or when we defend something, we don't realize uh, whether what we're saying is excellent or whether it's faulty and needs work. And uh, this is, of course, I'm generalizing. Some of us are better at this than others, and some are certainly better at some moments than we are at other moments. And so this is all complicated, but I wanted to make some general statements here about what we're like, because I see this all the time. I can get a speaker in speech class to mark down on the script in a speech that, hey, you should take a really big breath right here and pause for dramatic effect and be sure you're ready to go on. I can get them to make the mark, but can I get them to execute the mark the next time they read through the speech? Well, that is very difficult. The same thing happens in chorus with teens and adults uh, and, and with my younger singing groups too. We can make a breath mark in a song. Okay, we're all going to breathe here, but can I get them to do it? Or we can notate what vowel sound we're going to use uh, in the middle of some word, but can I get them to actually execute that note when we get to it the next time we sing the song? Well, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> People are some, some of them are good, some of them are not good, and even the good ones are not always consistent. And so this is a thing. We are not very good at being long-term self-aware of what we're doing in the moment. And then another thing, and I'm sure I've mentioned this before, uh, so often I think we overestimate our ability to make changes. And what I mean is something like this. Uh, I've probably said these exact same words before on this podcast, but I'm going to say it again now. Uh, say the, the actor's line is, uh, the tide is high at midnight, and uh, it's delivered uh, at too low a volume. The tide is high at midnight. And I'll say as the director, okay, let's hear that line again, but this time please do it loud. And they'll say, the tide is high at midnight. And I'll say, no, no, I need it loud. Do it again. The tide is high at midnight. <laughs> like, And I'll say, was that louder? And they'll say, yeah. Like, no, it was not uh, louder at all. And I'd say, okay, now let's go to like just crazy loud. Just go over the top. And they'll say, the tide is high at midnight, where it's a little bit louder. And, of course, we're looking at a sound pressure level meter on the wall to know exactly how loud it was. So we're looking at the numbers. You still, you ask the actor or the speaker, uh, was that louder? Yeah. How much? Oh, a lot. No, it wasn't a lot louder. It was only a little bit. 
And so it is very difficult. Uh, we've worked all semester in my speech class on being loud enough in our speeches because we don't use microphones, not in the first semester. And the reason we don't is because you have to train people to be aware of their volume. Okay, now again, this is all going to come back to the Bible, so please don't think this whole episode's about speech class. Uh, but they are just not very aware of it, and even after 13 weeks of training uh, every week, they're still apt to get too soft in their final performance. Uh, it's, it's an attentional thing. If they're not paying attention, it's not going to happen automatically unless they are just long-term trained. Well, I see this a lot with all manner of things, not only with somebody's performance in singing or speech or acting, but I also see it in their, don't want to use the word performance exactly, but in the way that they behave in class. Are they courteous? Are they kind? Are they respectful? Are they thoughtful about others? Do they, um, do they respond well to things and so forth? Well, what if they haven't been very well trained what if it's a thing that takes 13 weeks to learn or 13 years to learn and they haven't had that 13 years of training yet? Well, then they're going to be behind. And uh, Kate and I, my wife, we, um, we trained our son James uh, quite deliberately, apparently more deliberately than most people do. We trained him uh, from the beginning in all manner of things, how to speak clearly, how to uh, make sense when you ask a question, how to explain a thing well, and, and all this sort of, uh, you know, how to stay out of the middle of the aisle at Walmart so that others can get by, just all manner of things. We explain things, and uh, one of the benefits of that is we uh, seem to have developed a high level of trust where uh, James knows that the things we've told him to do, well, there's a reason for that, and we can tell him what the reason is so that it's not just some arbitrary command. Go do this. Go do that. And so it's worked out very well, and it's not infrequently that we find ourselves thinking, well, why can't this kid, this student, uh, this other than James student, why can't he be like James? <laughs> and we realize, well, has he had 18 years of training in this sort of thing and 18 years of reading and discussion. You know, uh, Kay did all of uh, James's homeschooling and they read through uh, classic literature uh, for years and years and years and discussed it. And so these are the books that have stood the test of time. This is the wisdom of the ages uh, coming through and uh, all manner of uh, genre that they read. And so he's got all this rich experience. Well, what if he didn't have that? Would he be like James? Well, no, he wouldn't, right? And so we've done our best to train him along the way, and certainly we could have done better uh, if we knew better. And yet uh, here's a very rich experience as parents. Well, there's a, a, a nicely trained James, uh, but then there are certainly others who aren't trained that well. Okay, so where are we going with this? I, uh, I think we're in trouble. Uh, I, I believe, and I, I'm sort of getting into the first lines of my, of my uh, article that I'm going to read to you today, but I think in, in general, Christianity is in trouble, uh, that it's not what God 
would intend it to be that we've somehow gotten the wrong ideas about some things, and it is not the real deal. It's, uh, in fact, I have been thinking quite hard for some months now about doing some series about the real Jesus and who he is really compared to uh, what is often said about him from the pulpit or in hearsay you know, among Christians in the popular books, in the popular songs on the radio, the Christian radio. Uh, I think that the world has got him wrong a lot and uh, that the message that they spread about him is inaccurate in some very serious ways and it has really bad consequences. And so I am um, I'm going to read this article to you today. I'll butt in as I think I ought to. It's called Dysfunctional Christianity, and it's posted on my blog site, jackpelham.com. And you can find it, uh, it's a posting from May, uh, March 7th. So it's just a, about a month ago. So here it goes. I think that Christianity is in a state of emergency. There's a huge difference between what it is supposed to be and what it actually is. Let me try to explain briefly what surely deserves many articles to treat thoroughly. Christianity is supposed to be a human subculture in which people honor God for his righteousness, wisdom, and love, and strive to live in his image themselves all their ways, or in all their ways, both in their own thoughts and in how they treat one another. They are supposed to be able to learn how to get along well with one another and to grow and to mature in their thoughts and character and to come to understand deep and meaningful things. They're supposed to be able to work well together and in all this should serve as some sort of a light in this dark world. But in reality, this is not what's generally going on in the churches. While there are certainly some exceptions among Christians, I think we are generally a dysfunctional lot who spend more time pretending to be a holy people than actually living in holiness. As a culture, and in our various microcultures that we have invented in our denominational world, we are not actually learning the precepts of God so much as we are learning memes and hearsay that we repeat incessantly to one another, creating echo chambers in which there is a collective effort to present what we were doing in a way that is much more impressive than what we're actually like. It is vain, empty, for show, and it makes a mockery of the actual teachings of Scripture. The way the church, and I put that in quotes, the way the church talks and thinks about itself has become a massive idol of sorts, taking the place of the true religion taught in the Scriptures uh, the God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the prophets and the apostles. And this is not a complete sentence, so <laughs> you heard it here first. Anyway, I think you get the idea of what I'm saying. Uh, and going on, we are not like those people. We have trained ourselves not to be fully aware of that fact. Sure, we know it, and many among us regularly bemoan the sad state of the church today, but almost no one among us seems to be in the business of setting things right in our own camps. No, just like all the other camps, we're quite busy pretending to keep the church plates spinning, keeping the busyness going, keeping the traditions running, keeping the church services on schedule. And I put services in quote because I'm still wondering what exactly is a worship service. 
or a funeral service. Who are we serving when we do that? And where did we learn to call it that? That's always been curiosity to me. But going on. Uh, we've been busy keeping the church services on schedule and keeping the public relations spin going, keeping it spinning, <clears throat> such that it is well marketed and presented such that we keep the lore of our own church business going in hopes that future generations will keep coming to church. What's missing is the why. Why should we do this? And what else is missing is the what that we're supposed to be doing, but aren't. Let me repeat for you the second paragraph in this post. Christianity is supposed to be a human subculture in which people honor God for his righteousness, wisdom, and love, and strive to be like him themselves, both in their own thoughts and in the way they treat one another. They are supposed to be able to get along well with one another, to grow and to mature in their thoughts and character, and to come to understand deep and meaningful things. They're supposed to be able to work well together, and in all this should serve as some sort of a light in this dark world. And that paragraph, of course, I'm butting in here, that is uh, Jack's own view of things, which I could explain at great length, and you know how I came to that view from the scriptures. But, um, but there you go. That's, that's what I think it's supposed to be. So going on. This may well be the sort of thing that we claim to be doing. It may be part of our lore, of our own self-talk, of our own media campaign, it may be part of the hearsay culture that we run, part of the things we say about ourselves as we try to keep the church machine running. But in actuality, we are far from such a people. We are not a bunch of people who are becoming substantially like Jesus in character. No, we are instead a people who cannot manage the basics of thinking, deciding, believing, and acting that are taught in Scripture. We have been mistrained, misinformed, mistreated, and misconditioned. We have been subjected to such a long train of errors and bad spiritual habits that we lack any meaningful awareness in some cases that we are in error. We've been lied to and misinformed so much that we struggle even to identify reality. We don't know how to discuss things with one another and are so afraid of being hurt and or misunderstood that we quickly shut down. And that's a going to be a major theme here, this shutting down and this being dysfunctional and not knowing how to talk things out. And so I go on, that is, we are cognitively and emotionally unfit for having such discussions. Where we could possibly work some things out, we don't. Instead, we shut down, being basically incapable of getting anything accomplished. All we do is to keep church running as we always have. Beyond that, we are incapable no substantial reforms, no improvements, no repentance, no setting things right, no overhauls of any sort. We have become strange idolaters of a sort, where we ought to be worshiping God and striving to learn and to understand and to implement the great many principles and precepts and facts and thoughts that are in the scriptures. We have traded all of that off for a religion of make-believe in which we pretend that we, the church, already grasp it all, more or less, and where we discount the intellectual pursuits that would be necessary to actually understand it. The result is an inauthentic religion. 
where we spend much more time trying to appear as if we were a special organization than we spend trying to be special people. We've made idols of ourselves, idols of what we do and of our own story. We don't see ourselves as we actually are with our unimpressive uh, track records, but we see ourselves, as some think of it, as, quote, the church triumphant, end quote. We can't agree on our own doctrines and practices. We don't know how, and we don't even try for the most part. Rather, we take it as a given that we ought to split up into our various camps where we can do as we please and to remain unbothered by the choices other Christians are making elsewhere. But it doesn't stop there. For within each camp, we have our own struggles of disagreement. We have our own members who are trying themselves, whether much or little, to make sense of this world and of the scriptures, and what goes on in the church, whatever that means to them. And we've got to manage those people somehow. In most cases, this management of personnel in the churches is handled terribly, in ungodly fashion. There's a ubiquitous drive to control information, as if to keep things from getting out of hand. And practically every church subculture makes ample use of thought stoppers, manipulative techniques for getting the members to self-regulate in what they're willing to think about, to be curious about, to look into, to explore and examine, and to ask questions about, or to make public comments about. Indeed, one of the greatest threats in most church cultures has become the genuine question of the sort one asks when trying to understand how things are, the sort of mental output that even a child can produce. Ask a genuine question in most churches and see if the answer you get doesn't seem to be the sort of answer that suggests that no further questions ought be asked. Or see if, rather, the one asking the question is encouraged to ask on until his curiosity has been satisfied. I doubt very much you'll find the latter, Indeed, the one asking, quote, too many questions, end quote, is likely to be pulled aside rather quickly so as to modify the question-asking behavior. Various reasons may be given for the need to stop asking. They may be things like, your questions are making people uncomfortable, or they're making people struggle with their faith. Or the criticisms may be aimed at you personally, such as, I get the feeling that your questions are motivated by pride or by a desire to stir up trouble or by a desire simply to challenge the leaders as if you were vying for control. Or more informally, these kinds of things often come out as one-liners like these. You just like to argue. You always have to be right. You love to hear the sound of your own voice. You don't have a very quiet and gentle spirit. I sure do hear a lot of Jack in your questions, and not much Jesus. You are prideful. You are independent. You're just bitter. People may tell you these things, having heard them themselves over and over for many years in their own church experience, whether they've been told these by others and have learned to quit asking questions themselves, or whether... They simply overheard them and are now stepping in to play their own part in the grand hearsay exercise that has become the church. It's a mindless practice aimed at promoting more mindlessness.
And what happens when such tactics are unsuccessful at shutting down the questions and challenges to the going beliefs and practices? Well, generally, the heat gets turned up. The pushback against the questioner or challenger normally gets hotter as needed to make them stop. Perhaps some sin of theirs is singled out in order to drive them away, even if other members who aren't the questioner challenger sort are living with the same sins and aren't confronted. Perhaps they are deliberately slighted such that they'll take offense and quit coming to the church. This is how it is normally done. And it doesn't take a genius to cook up a suitable strategy to make something like this work. And this is almost always involving hypocrisy in the leadership. In particular, it involves the hiding and or excusing of leaders' sins, or injustice, errors, bad behaviors. There's almost always cover-up that goes on, which is itself injustice. And members get caught in the middle and are forced to take sides. And the church is used unfairly in this, where it's really just leaders cheating in their morality and in their administration of justice. It's done in the name of, quote, the church, end quote, and even of Jesus, such that the resulting actions of the leadership are counted as official church business, and I would add here, as official Jesus business or God business. We've all seen this, if we've had our eyes open, I know of no denomination that is immune to it, even among the ones that proudly consider themselves non-denominational. And if you fast forward through a few decades of this sort of church experience, you get to a spot where you have an entire church culture that has been mistreated in such ways and that has been psychologically conditioned into quite a dysfunctional lot. This miscarriage of justice and the mismanagement of facts, questions, and challenges has become for them a way of life. They have watched as many things were swept under the rug, and they learned to justify, and I put that in quotes because it's not really just, it's a, it's a cheating mental activity. They've learned to justify this in various ways, none of which are actually just. And worse, they learned to do this in Jesus' name, as part of the religion they will tell you is authorized and sustained by none other than Jesus himself as, quote, the head of the church, end quote. Do they know better? Of course they do. But they have to tell themselves whatever it takes to keep the practice running. Otherwise, this is not them disagreeing with the leadership, disagreeing with fallible humans over the way they've handled things, but it is them disagreeing with, quote, the Lord's church, end quote, and with God himself. This is the way it's spun. This is the way they've heard things talked about many thousands of times over the years. And this is the way they will see it, until it's not. That is, this is the way they'll see it until they finally figure out that this sort of endemic injustice and intellectual dishonesty is not, in fact, the will of God. Once they figure that out, then they tend to find and to cling to passages of Scripture, such as this one. Uh, John 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I had said it's an idolatry problem, and it is. 
While Christians are supposed to be following God and Jesus, the vast majority go to churches that teach them to follow the church. That's not to say that they say they're teaching them, mind you. No, they say they're teaching them to follow God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Bible. But if you actually analyze what's going on there, you'll see that they're indeed being taught to follow the church institution and its traditions and the real-time dictates of leadership, even where they disagree with the teachings of Scripture. Now, at this point, many are quite ready to fight, making their various cases from the Bible for the legitimacy of the leadership in their churches. And at this point, our present discussion would have to explode into a thousand directions so as to give due consideration to all the arguments that would be presented in defense of what goes on in today's churches. But I'm not going to go there in proper at this point. Rather, I'll deal with that in subsequent articles, if I haven't already written about it somewhere or other. Let me make this one point right away, however. The sheer fact that there are, among the churches, so many different teachings about the proper structure and authority of church leadership should itself be an exceedingly troubling and offsetting fact. My point is that the utter certainty with which so many will handle this belies the obvious disunity that exists on the subject and that has existed through many centuries of fierce debate. But let me cut to the chase here. If you're a cheating referee and want to manipulate the outcome of a football game, the easiest way to do it is to stop calling fouls for the infraction known as holding. The team being favored in this way quickly figured out, or quickly figures out, that they can get away with this particular cheat in this present game, so they hold more and more. Meanwhile, the other team continues to be penalized for holding whenever they do it, and the favored team enjoys a substantial and unfair advantage in being allowed to break this particular rule with impunity. This is what every church I know does in protection of leadership and whatever they happen to call it in their own church culture. A rank-and-file member who molests one of the youth group may well be run off, but when a church leader does it, a great many congregations, and not all of them, mind you, but a great many will consider that a special case. No penalty flag is thrown. And why not? Well, it might, quote, cause people to struggle, end quote, or, quote, give the Lord's church a bad reputation, end quote. Or perhaps some other consideration is overemphasized, such as that the family of the church leader who sinned would be really harmed if this were to come out. These are vain excuses, to be sure, yet they are so commonly practiced as to sound quite legitimate to many millions of believers today. And meanwhile, many a wounded teen and family are left to suffer without the proper closure of a just treatment of the offense. And this, sadly, is a way of life for a great many Christian families. Let me repeat. These excuses are utterly convincing to a great many Christians today. When they hear them, they believe them, and they shut down any further mental processing of what's going on. And they also have learned to repeat such things to one another. That is, they are active participants in the hearsay culture, in the meme machine, by which the church spreads institution-protecting messages throughout the membership. And they keep doing this, 
even as they see it continue to hurt others who have been wronged and who are subsequently treated unjustly in the aftermath of it, so as to protect the great idol, the church. Where the scriptures would teach that individuals should confess their sins and repent of them and quit doing them, the churches get themselves off into the weeds of excusing and even protecting the sins of their leaders. This is cheating. And it's done in the name of God and of the church. Never mind that God hates injustice. Never mind that the scriptures repeatedly demand repentance from such a wickedness under threat of the lake of fire. No, the churches continue to excuse it anyway. And I could scarcely count the myriad sins that go on protected in this way. The people have been conditioned to join in the protection of it. They are that dysfunctional, that unchristlike, that twisted of mind and of behavior alike. Don't they know better? Yes, but they are torn between two masters, between Jesus and the church. And which one's voice do they follow? Invariably, it's the church until they change their minds, which is what it means to repent. And then what happens? Then they discover rather quickly that they cannot stay in their church, for if they cannot, for they cannot serve two masters. Either they will love the one and hate the other, or to be devoted to the one and despise the other. And if I may be so bold as to speak my mind, that's what the churches are doing. They are despising God and serving church instead. Church has different morals from God. God is righteous, wise, loving, and just, where church doesn't have to be any of those things. And God is always righteous, wise, loving, and just, where church can pick and choose on an ad hoc basis how it would like to behave in this or that scenario. Most Christians develop a very high threshold of tolerance for the inconsistencies and injustices of church. They tell themselves it's the right way to think. And even though they know better, and even though anybody who has read the Bible should know better, but hypocrisy is the price of membership in an institution like that. If you're not willing to be hypocritical, you can't stay. And many, we can observe, are quite willing. Hypocrisy is, by the way, one of the fundamental paradigms of this world. When injustice happens at church, the dysfunction of the members can be observed. They'll know that the wrong has occurred, but they'll function like children in the aftermath of it. The institution will be protected in most cases, and the penalty flags won't be thrown against every foul as needed to protect the leadership. God utterly hates injustice, but church does not. God loathes it, but church thrives on it. And the people are forced in their church business to choose between the two again and again. And a great many will never reason their way out of that quagmire. It's quite simple, actually, but to them, it's complicated. But it's complicated because of one very fundamental dysfunction. That is, they have learned to set aside the truth of a matter in deference to some higher priority. It's that bad. And this makes them dysfunctional in so many other ways. Witness the average believer in an online discussion forum about Christianity. 
Most cannot navigate disagreements or wide-ranging discussions well at all. They can't handle being disagreed with. They get all caught up in the weeds of wanting to know each other's tone and can't manage to deal with the actual facts of what's being written to them. They are quick to take personal offense and lose sight of the basics, such as fact, logic, and sourcing, rather quickly. They can't constrain themselves to avoid taking scripture out of context, and there's no shortage of examples of this. They can't constrain themselves to say and to write only that which they know to be strictly and demonstrably true. They simply must include other material, exaggerating its worthiness. In short, they end up executing upon others the same manner of hearsay treatment that they've been trained in at church. They get triggered by things and they shut down, just like they've been conditioned to do at church. You'll likely have to search a long time before you ever find two of them who can set out to discuss and study some grand Bible topic and who can remain functional in that study for six months. It will have crashed and burned much sooner than that. The modern Christian is a champion of abandoned trails, which I've discussed here before on this podcast. That is, of ideas and topics that seem worthy of investigation, but that will invariably be abandoned before any good has come of it. We are victims of a thousand distractions, of a thousand thought stoppers and redirections and manipulations. Our minds are not well trained for paying attention long term or for seeing a matter through to its end, and of course they're not. Indeed, we've been deliberately trained in exactly the opposite for our entire church lives. We've been so conditioned to pause at the least sign of emotional trouble or of conflict or at the least accusation of wrongdoing or hint of suspicion. We have victimized each other while thinking that we're doing God's service in it all. This should not be. And that is the fact. The reader who cares about the sad state I'm pointing out will surely want to know, okay, what now? But I say, first things first. Let this fact be stated loud and clear that the current state of things is unjust, dishonest, and hypocritical, and that it must be abandoned by anyone wishing to be an authentic follower of Jesus. An article like this will be intriguing to many, but the question that lies in the balance is this. What will be done with this fact? The choices in the extremes are, number one, to repent of it completely, or number two, to do something less than complete repentance. Number two is by far the most popular option. In fact, there's a variant of number two that is so utterly popular and effective that, is, that it has become the default way of dealing with such things. So here's number three, making a show of taking this seriously, but then ending up doing something less than complete repentance. Number three is such a glorious option for so many because it helps people deceive themselves quite convincingly. Oh yeah, we had a special meeting about this very serious issue and leadership is acting decisively on it. Such things may re be reported a hundred times in a church culture without anyone asking, so how's that going? What's the latest? Notice that they're satisfied with the appearance of action and are incurious about the effectiveness and completeness of it. And that's the way we do it. That's the way we practice our dysfunctional Christianity. We want the appearance of function, but
but are unwilling to pay the price of authenticity. And that's the culture we grew up in, if we grew up in the churches. I know of no exceptions to this rule. I will frequently ask people to cite examples of exceptions, and every once in a while I run across someone who is so deluded as to send me the address of their church, which is demonstrably like the rest in these days. But most people know. They know their congregation is in a bad way. The doctrinal particulars may vary slightly, but every church institution I know of has the same sort of bad ingredients mixed into their bowl, even if they can boast that their recipes are different. This is not righteous. A post like this should rightly raise a hundred questions or more, and most of them very good ones. But a hundred modern Christians, having been raised in churches like ours, will not be well equipped to ask those questions or to navigate the discussion that should naturally ensue. Keep in mind that we've been conditioned for decades to shut down, to abandon the trail, to be distracted, to be dissuaded, to live with disappointment, and to shut down any curiosity we may have. Indeed, the easiest possible thing to do in response to this post is nothing. And the next easiest thing to do in response to this post is next to nothing. And that is what most will do until it is not. That is what most will do until they make the glorious decision to change their minds and to think as God thinks about such things, even if it means rejecting what their church thinks about it. And that's the end of the article. I do think that we have been raised to be uh, quite dysfunctional. Some perhaps by the example of our parents, but certainly by what goes on at church and how our parents sort of let that ride, how they, they yield to that and let it be what it is and they don't take a stand to fix it. And this is a very, very serious problem. So I hope you understand what I mean by church becoming an idol where we just go with whatever the idol says rather than bringing all that back to scripture just like it says in acts about uh, paul's missionary campaigns and how the people in berea were of more noble character than the thessalonians because they would check out every day what paul said in the bible to be sure it was true and that was lauded as a very good thing well, I don't think we're like that. Uh, and, and again, I'm talking generally. I don't think that the people really care that much what God said, why he said it, what it meant, what he wanted us to do about it. I don't think they care. I think we tell ourselves we care, but we don't. And that's what's wrong with the churches. Now, uh, what should be done about this? <laughs> well, we should repent. We should become people who uh, love God, who love his word, who will hold ourselves to it even when it's hard, who are willing to have conflict with others about it. You know, think about it. Jesus, whom every church will say is like the most righteous person ever, he had conflicts about it that he could have avoided, and uh, they led to his death. And he knew this ahead of time. He knew where it was going, and yet he did it anyway. Well, are we going to be like Jesus or not? 
I cannot um, be quiet. I mean, I can, but I won't. Why should I be quiet about what I'm convinced is the truth? I do notice working with a lot of people, uh, some of them, some significant uh, or substantial uh, uh, ratio, uh, some of them have serious fear issues. They won't speak in front of others. They won't speak up in class to answer a question. They won't sing in front of others. They don't want to act in front of others. Um, you know, this, this kind of thing. I even had people come get in a voice class once who refused to sing in front of the class, knowing full well that that's what we do in this class. So I'm thinking, why did you sign up for this class? It was insane. Well, so many deal with such fear. And I realize, you know, I don't have very much of that. And why not? And I think it is because I have tried to bring everything back to the Bible and try to get things straight from the evidence we have in the scriptures. Well, it's a huge project and there's no way I can get to all of it. But I think over time it's built a lot of confidence in me where I'm like, look, if I'm wrong about something, I want to let that go and no longer believe it that way. And I want to find a better way um, to understand it. And so I'm not married to my beliefs. I'm willing to let one go if something better comes along. And uh, so my understandings of things are provisional. Now, some of them, I'm pretty sure Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But if somebody comes offering some proof that I'm wrong about that, uh, well, okay, I'll listen to that, see if they seem like they're honest, rational, and responsible about it. So I hope you understand what I mean about keeping my beliefs in provisional status rather than firm. I think other people want to uh, exaggerate the uh, level of certainty that their beliefs should be assigned. And they want church to be everything tied up in a neat little package. And yes, we understand this and that and the other thing. And it's all very clear. And the Bible makes perfect sense. And it's just obvious. And uh, there you go. Well, for them, somebody who comes along who's questioning things and is curious and wants an explanation, well, how would that work? Well, this is very bothering and it's very scary because you're threatening to overturn their apple cart. And that's a metaphor in case you don't know that. <laughs> so I think we've got ourselves where most of us who believe in Jesus uh, are not gaining the confidence that one should have after having been with Jesus for a time. If you remember in Acts, uh, his uh, disciples uh, surprised some of their critics. Aren't these the guys, aren't these guys fishermen? How are they talking like this? How do they have this confidence, this boldness? How do they know this stuff, right? Well, they'd been in training and not just in trivia training with Jesus, they actually had been in character training too. And I think if the confidence of Jesus does not come with being a disciple of his, you're not a disciple. You may be going through the motions, but you haven't really yielded yourself to his thoughts and his ways. Uh, and, and I think that bajillions of us are like this as Christians, where we just cannot settle down and hear a matter through and hash it out We've got conflicts that are going to stay un, uh, undiscussed. 
And recently, I've, I became aware of this Japanese concept, two concepts. They're sort of a, a yin-yang type of pair. One is tatamai, one is hone. And tatamai is, uh, well, let me start with hone. Hone as thing, is things as they actually exist. And tatamai is what you are willing to say or what you put out for show. Um, things that you are willing to say. And so, you know, some of the things I've been learning about examples of this are the employees not pleasing the boss, but the boss, boss won't come out and say, look, you're doing A, B, and C wrong. Cut it out. Uh, do D, E, and F instead of A, B, and C, and that'll be fine. They don't want to say that. Rather, they want to sort of sugarcoat it, and the employee is thinking, okay, I don't really understand what I'm doing wrong. And uh, it's a certain sort of dysfunction. However, in their culture, this is a really big deal. The idea is with tatamai, the, the, what you say, the, the, the point should be to keep things moving along, to keep it moving forward. And so you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, you know, thanks for the present, but I don't really like uh, this present. Well, they would never say that. Uh, they would say, thank you, thank you, and it was so generous, so kind, and such, and would not be honest about it, even if asked, well, what, did you like it? I mean, do I need to take it back and get you? Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I love it. I love it. And so, uh, well, that is, uh, we have a word for that. It's called lying. And um, yet their idea in culture is, no, we got to keep things moving along. Well, I, I watched several videos about this, talked about it, did some reading about it. And I realized, well, we do that here in America too. And church is so much about that. Hey, bro, how you doing? Oh, great, you? Oh, fine, yeah, thanks, okay, fine. Well, neither one of them's doing great. They both have stuff that's uh, heavy on their heart and they probably ought to sit down and talk about it, but they don't because they want to keep things moving along. And I think that has so much to do with how churches are run. Uh, and am I stereotyping? Oh, sure. Uh, am I doing that without good reason? Well, I don't know of churches that aren't like that. I know of some people who aren't like that, but they don't tend to get along very well at church because they challenge that sort of a system. They challenge that dynamic, that disposition, that, that corporate culture. For what, what are we supposed to be like here at church? Well, they don't play the tatamai game. They're hone. They're straight up, what's the truth? What's the actuality of things? And that does not go across very well. And you know who else was like that? Jesus was. And so this comes back to what I was saying in my introductory remarks about wanting to do some series on the real Jesus versus the fake one that you learn about at church. I also have in mind another sort of blunt title for a series called Dumb Junk I Learned at Church and What They Should Have Taught Me Instead. Because <laughs> I just think so much of this goes on. It's funny, in my later years, uh, one of my goals is not to become the grumpy old man. And yet the more I learn about what's righteous, the more unrighteousness I notice in the world and uh, it would definitely be easy to get in this groove of just griping, constantly fussing this and that, this and the other thing. Well, what are you going to do? 
If you're going to keep learning, you're going to keep noticing other people's mistakes. We notice this in public speaking class where kid comes back and says, man, I paid attention to the cashier at Walmart the other day, and boy, was she not a good speaker. Well, yeah, that's natural to happen. Same thing in reality-based thinking class. Uh, yeah, a lot of people make this kind of error. Yes, they do. Thanks for noticing, right? In fact, we do easier, we do better noticing such things in others than in ourselves. Uh, so, anyway, I don't want to belabor the point too much. I think that uh, overall, if you want to talk about us Christians as a group, we're a pretty sad lot. And I think it's because there are so many uh, church institutions out there putting out this twisted view of Jesus that the members, while they should know who Jesus really is, they don't. And it's so easy to lie to themselves and say they're being godly when they're not. And it's easy to get away with that at church, especially if it's a big tent, if they're trying to gather a bunch of, bunch of people for lots of tithing and such. Um, obviously, they're going to have to relax the rules. And, you know, how many people can hang with Jesus without getting uh, offended and run off? You know, frequently, I remember the apostles like, do you realize what you just said offended them? <laughs> Jesus totally realized it. He knew what time it was. Uh, so he was not trying to build a big tent. He was trying to find authentic uh, disciples. And so I, we have that same issue with, uh, with ourselves, and I don't think many are doing well with it. And so we could talk and talk forever, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for listening today, and I hope I can keep going with it. We'll just have to see. I've got some work starting next week, and so maybe money gets better and for this year, and we'll keep it running. Uh, but I sure would love some help. I do have on the website at rethinkingthebible.com. I do have a PayPal link there and would uh, very much appreciate it if you would contribute to the cause and help keep it uh, uh, funded for the future. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. I hope you're all doing well. I would love to hear from you. Uh, one of the dis um, discouraging things about this whole podcast business has been that I almost never hear from anybody about anything I say, including, by the way, uh, friends who listen and then get mad because we disagree and then become dysfunctional and won't tell me where they disagree with me. So then it's quite the unfair game trying to figure out how come that friend is getting more and more distant from me and I don't know why. And so this is not me fussing at friends. This is just me, you know, making observations. I wish that we as a culture were more communicative and felt like we could discuss things. But again, once you start that with somebody like me, it's going to be, oh, well, why do you think that? Well, what scripture makes you think that? oh, well, I see how you're reading that scripture. Why do you read it that way? Why not read it this way? Then suddenly it becomes not easy. It's, it's this long uh, process that takes a lot of mental work. Well, in a culture of cognitive misers, uh, how are we going to do with that? We're going to not want to do the work, and so we may cheat on it. And basically what we end up doing is, well, okay, this friendship has become difficult because it requires work that I'm not willing to do. So let's just let that one go. 
and I'll find some excuse. Well, you know, uh, I just really didn't like his tone or, you know, he, he seemed overbearing or, you know, whatever. And so this is the kind of thing I was reading about in the story. We just come up with reasons to quit. And this is dysfunction, uh, class A dysfunction. That's what we do. So anyway, I'm so glad you listened. And thanks for joining in.